Welcome to the Face Place podcast. My name is Mel. I'm an oral health therapist and orofacial myofunctional therapist at my practice, The Face Place. Each week, I'll be interviewing a different professional to learn all about their area of expertise and how it relates to oral and facial function, dental health, and the whole body. Let's get to our guest. Jessamy Caval is a registered midwife, childbirth educator, and an O-Baby nutrition trained consultant for pregnancy, postpartum, and baby. She has a diploma in child development and a degree in sociology. Jess's business, The Mindful Midwife Mama, provides an evidence-based approach and holistic, mindful support to women to ensure they are informed, empowered, and well-nourished for pregnancy, postpartum, and beyond. Hi, just a quick note about the audio before you listen any further. My USB jack in my microphone broke literally as I was setting up and about to record with Jess. So my audio is not as good as usual. I'm really sorry about that. And it should be fixed by the next episode. So please bear with me. Jessamy, welcome to the Face Place podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Mel. We are going to be talking about preconception care. So Straight off the bat, what is that? Can you explain what is preconception care? So preconception care is really holistically supporting your body, not only physically, but also preparing your body emotionally, mentally, and all aspects to basically put yourself in the healthiest and most thriving position to conceive a baby. And time frame, I love really looking at three to 12 months because we know that an egg takes around 88 days to fully develop. So by having that three months as a baseline really allows your body to be in the best position to start, really. And there's a lot involved in it too, if you want me to go into that detail as well. (laughs) Yeah, I think we'll probably get a little bit further along as we talk, but is that just for women? No. And this is something I talk about with all my clients. Of course, women can have babies all different ways now. However, you still need sperm. And if you're in a traditional relationship, then realistically, that partner is 50% of this baby's makeup. So all the suggestions and recommendations I make to women, which I'm sure we'll discuss, the partner should be doing as well. And I mean, look, they get to sit back to some degree once you are pregnant, (laughs) but it's so important. And I think slowly research is building up around this too, because there's been so much emphasis in the past around females and what they need to do. And it's like, hang on a minute, let's reevaluate this. It's a partnership. Yeah. Already kind of going off track from our main topic, but yeah, that just made me think of when we saw my obstetrician as a, like a preconception kind of appointment because I anticipated some issues with our fertility. And I said, you know, what about my husband was there with us? What about him? You know, what's he got to do? <laughs> and is he a heavy drinker? Is he a smoker? Does he take drugs? No, no, no. Okay. That was it. <laughs> That's all that he had to do. Just <laughs> drink excessively, not take drugs and not smoke. So yeah, it's a much bigger picture than that. Oh my goodness, there's so much more involved in that. And it's not only just preconception, it's really setting up an environment for a thriving and healthy baby once they come home as well. And if you're living in the household together and you're doing things, minimizing, you know, plastics and toxins in your toiletries and things like that, cleaning products, well, the partner needs to do it as well. There's no point them coming with their awful smelling links through the house, (laughs) deodorant, if 
the mother has completely stripped down to all natural products. Yeah. So when we first spoke, we were talking about a completely different topic when we kind of met each other and we ended up on to this discussion. And in that, we kind of both connected with this idea of preconception care, not really being very different from healthcare. Could you like sort of a general health and well-being? Could you kind of explain why we both kind of went, why is it even called preconception care? <laughs> it should just be health. What is there a difference? Yeah, I think unfortunately our traditional healthcare system is let's wait till an issue arises and then let's treat it. Whereas preconception care, which really should be everyday living care, (laughs) is prevention. So it's setting up your body and your mind to be in the best place possible. So really looking at things to minimize unwanted symptoms arising, looking at things, nutrients and what your body needs at certain times of pregnancy and therefore how you can meet those needs rather than waiting till you're completely depleted and having to climb back from that. Yeah, we spoke about preconception care, simple things, adapting your environment, reducing caffeine, eliminating alcohol, which has benefit not just for preconception, but for life in general, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, great. Because if you're setting yourself up for the best situation of fertility, then that really just means that you're setting up your body to be in its best health and well-being. A hundred percent. Yep, really does. And I think too, with preconception care, a lot of the time the focus is on physical but it's really a great time to mentally check in too because pregnancy is a stressor on the body. It takes a lot of energy and postpartum, once you throw sleep deprivation and elevation of hormones, it's next level. And so I think it's really a time to maybe look into past traumas if that's something that you've experienced, to look at your relationship dynamic with your partner because things are going to change and you're going to have an identity shift. It's just that's how our brains actually work after the birth process. So I think that's something else that a lot of people don't consider with preconception and even implementing some strategies for self-care now because once you have a baby and you're in motherhood, you really need to prioritise yourself for your baby and for everyone else involved. For sure. And is that where the mindful element of mindful midwife mama comes in? I think so, yeah. Yeah, it does because for me I very much work holistically and I work in relation to the emotional impact of pregnancy, the mental space it takes, the physical aspect. It's just not pinpointing one area, but rather than looking at a possible concern or issue and how that has flowed onto another part of your body. Yeah. So kind of just incorporating it all, bringing it all together. Yeah. As you were saying just a bit earlier that it's getting a lot more promotion now, preconception care. I think a lot more people probably know what we mean when we say that and definitely in the world that I've been in lately you know I've had a pregnancy and a baby within the last couple of years so it's definitely a a term that I'm pretty familiar with it's not a new thing it's not a modern a sort of a modern healthcare practice is it no no it's not and I question why to some degree and I think a part of that is we have so much more access now to the internet, to social media, and there's maybe, which is wonderful because information's power, and I wonder too if there's an element of women sharing stories and going, oh, wow, I had a really tough time with this, and after I experienced it, this is how I supported myself. 
why don't you just do that from the beginning? And I think those conversations and these types of podcasts really support women to kind of think ahead and go, okay, preconceptions, not just about conceiving the baby and having a pregnancy, but it's also about how I can give my body the best start for that pregnancy, for that postpartum, for motherhood as well. And maybe too, maybe there's an element of women having babies a bit later and so wanting to educate themselves a bit more too. But of course, women have babies at all ages still. Yeah. Sure. But there's an element there of like sort of historical cultural practices too with preconception. Is there much that kind of applies now to our modern day with what I think some cultures ate caviar and things like that because they were eggs support eggs, that sort of thing. Is that still relevant to us? So there's definitely, when you're building up that beautiful egg quality, there's definitely things you can to support that. And the only thing that's really discussed is folic acid. And I feel like we have to address this in a preconception discussion. So folic acid is the synthetic form of folate. And unfortunately, it is kind of put out there as this is the one nutrient for preventing nuclear tube defects, preventing tongue ties and things like that. However, it's folate is methylated folate that we want and as well as that we also want to be looking at other beautiful things that are DHA omega-3s that are going to nourish the egg quality and that probably comes back to the caviar as well because it's rich in those beautiful omega-3s and we want to be looking at another nutrient choline which again also supports the brain and spinal development of baby. And a lot of that development is in the first six weeks. So before women may even realize they're pregnant. So by having those quality nutrients in place in preconception is going to support that stage of growth and development. Yeah, it always blows my mind. So before you know you're pregnant at like four to five weeks, your baby has a face. (laughs) that's just so cool so yeah four weeks pregnant is not we say four weeks pregnant but that's actually the end of a you're sort of anticipating a period at that point you don't actually know that you're pregnant most people wouldn't unless they were very onto their pregnancy testing (laughs) kits and very keen on it but yeah so much of that has it's already started which is and I'd love to know in your field around lip ties tongue ties do you ever have a discussion about prenatal supplementation or anything like that because the research is starting to come out with the association the correlation between the two have you found that in your practice yeah it's a it's a tricky one because as you said it's coming out the research is it's not there's so much gray as there usually is I think it's good to have a discussion about the quality of people's supplements and food and things like that regardless of what it might or might not mean for tongue and lip tie But definitely it's a good discussion to have with people if they are aware of the MTHFR gene mutation. It's another podcast probably. I know, (laughs) isn't it? (laughs) That's a big one to just be aware even more so is the availability of the folate in your supplement actually going to work for you. Yeah, I find it the cause of tongue and lip tie, it's still so grey. But I know what I've been saying in clinic a lot more lately is just that there is some kind of environmental factor which triggers that response. Nutrition, toxins, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a big one. It's a really big one, which basically leads us on to the next question is that all, are all prenatal supplements created equal? Are they all just, can you grab one off the shelf, no worries, and just take whatever you land on? Unfortunately, no. And the most accessible and the most recommended ones by healthcare professionals are usually 
quite rubbish, <laughs> to say it nicely, are filled with non or poorly absorbed nutrients such as folic acid rather than folate. And as you were speaking before about gene mutations, this can actually be quite damaging to some women. And not only that, they're not actually getting the volume they need because their body has to go through this process and it just ends up getting blocked. So they're not getting the benefit of folate anyway. So it's advertised as the most amount of folic acid prenatal has, but it's not actually getting to the woman and where it needs to go. And then there's a lot of supplements that are full of fillers and additives and they're in a pressed pill. So you might have vitamin D in there. Great. But vitamin D is a fat soluble vitamin. So unless it's in a fat source, it's not going to be absorbed well. So you might believe you're meeting those requirements, but realistically, we need to add on some other beautiful, rich food sources such as eggs or sun baking our mushrooms. And then possibly for women who are vitamin D deficient, which is a lot of women in Australia, adding a separate supplement on top of that because it's not black and white. There's not one supplement fits all. It's very dependent upon each woman's personal situation really and what their requirements are, what their nutrient levels are at and history too. So there's so much to factor in and the ones that are accessible, unfortunately, normally not that great. No, yeah, we won't name names, but there's some very prominent ones that tend to get recommended. Let's say just starts with E. <laughs> and the iron and women come to me and they're like, oh, I'm so constipated. My iron isn't going up. And I'm like, well, firstly, it's because you're on a really poorly absorbed iron level and all it's doing is getting blocked in your system and so your body thinks you're getting sufficient amount of iron and it stops absorbing. So it's not any benefit really, is it? And then you've got other nutrients that hinder other nutrients and so together in the pill it's just not working. I could that's a whole podcast in itself really. But yeah, yeah. So is that like if there's <laughs> like zinc and iron in the same supplement block each other yep completely and iron ideally you take on an empty stomach ideally but doesn't work for everyone and so if you're taking your prenatal on an empty stomach and you have zinc you're going to be nauseous and therefore you're not going to want to take your supplement at all and so this is when you need to look at obviously your food sources and then fill the gaps of supplementation but everyone has different need. There's two questions I have from what you just said before. The first one is most women in Australia being vitamin D deficient. And that's, it's a bit of a funny one because we spend so much time in the sun here in Australia. A lot of people do, or we're always being warned about too much sun exposure, which is great. Public health messages to not go sun baking all the time, but how are we ending up vitamin D deficient when we live in with the country with the most sunshine days in a year, at least parts of us are. I think up here in North Queensland, I think we get the most sun <laughs> of the country. Like, how is this happening? Well, I'm down in Victoria. So our sun is a little bit more limited to you, but it's whether you're not getting the sufficient amount of sun because you're we grew up, I think, in the slip slop slap generation, which of course is very needed in regards to skin cancer. But it might mean that you have sunscreen and a hat and sunglasses and long sleeves on from the beginning of the day to the end of the day. And we really need to prioritize a 15 minute window when the UV is at its lowest, ideally in the morning or the afternoon, and exposing areas such as our stomach and our 
thighs, which are known to actually absorb the most vitamin D. Your face absorbs the least and it causes skin sun damage. No one wants really aging and everything like that. So I think it's a bit of education about when to do it, how to do it. And I think also about food sources. We know, say, things such as pasture-raised pork products are higher in vitamin D because those pigs have been out in the paddock getting all that beautiful sunshine. So then when you eat that product, you're going to get more vitamin D. And it's the same with eggs. If your eggs are caged and these chickens have spent their life inside, their vitamin D levels are going to be much lower. Whereas if you get beautiful pasture-raised organic eggs, the vitamin D is much higher. So I think it's a combination of things, really. I think, too, as well, the level has dropped down. So without going too medical, the level that is recommended is nearly half of what I and other holistic practitioners recommend. So when women come in preconception just above that level, and we know how important vitamin D is for immune health and is for brain development, bones, everything for mum and baby, they're going to just automatically drop because bub just takes everything from that woman. So it's really tricky when you're working against a system that the markers, the levels estimated around somewhat of an unhealthy population because they're the people that test. Yeah, so they're using the averages they, to say that they kind of get, yeah, the average of the people who have been tested in whatever recent number of years and then they consider that the spectrum of normal. But as you said, if our population vitamin D levels are dropping, then the normal average actually isn't optimal. So, yeah, you're testing normal but not optimal. And I think we're inside a lot more too as well with office work and things like that. I think we are naturally inside a bit more COVID. Thanks for that. <laughs> Another one that we can talk up to COVID. <laughs> and the other question I had from something you just threw out before, sun baking your mushroom. What is that about? So it kind of links back to the idea that I was saying about pasteurized pork as well. So it's a beautiful cost-effective, doesn't cost any more, way to actually increase the vitamin D absorption of the mushrooms. So all you simply do is take your mushrooms outside onto a plate, let them get some beautiful sun and then eat them up. That's as simple as it is. And yeah, I know, just a little trick that I love to say to women, doesn't cost you anything and it's going to increase your nutrients because they absorb the vitamin D just as our body absorbs the vitamin D. It's pretty amazing. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah. I like that. <laughs> and also just on the note of the folic acid and folate, do you find it's also a problem or a potential problem that some of our prepackaged foods have that added to them as well, the folic acid? Yes. Is that adding to the issue with the quality in your prenatal? A hundred percent because there's this idea that you can never have too much but too much of something, particularly when it's synthetic, it's not healthy for our bodies. It really isn't. And it can turn our receptors off because our body feels like it's got a sufficient amount. But firstly, it doesn't have a quality of the folate, the methylated folate amount. And it's mixed messages. And it's an overload for the body. And it can be quite damaging. There is a lot of research around too much synthetic folate in your system if you do have gene mutations that it can increase your likelihood of things such as miscarriage and I think 
that's an awful circumstance for women to have to experience. And it's our job as health professionals to give them that awareness to avoid those circumstances happening. Yeah, I think that people don't don't actually know that we have these kind of supplemented things just in a loaf of bread that you might grab off the shelf that, yeah, it's not the bioavailable source. Yes, and I think that again comes back into one of my areas that I talk about with women is really eating a whole foods, ideally organic diet because you don't know what that bread, yeah, what synthetic nutrients have been added to that bread. And by eating, like I do say ideally organic because obviously everyone's budgets are different, but our soils are so depleted at the moment from over farming and they probably will be going forward. So we're just not getting what we used to get, say, 100 years ago. But it's so important to start that diet before you conceive. So then if you are nauseous in the first 12 weeks, you know you've done the groundwork, you know that you've supported your body for a few months already and that you can just kind of get through on those rice crackers if you need to. (laughs) Yeah, that was definitely me. Yeah. I'm going to get to talk about teeth and gums a little bit more soon. But, yeah, I was vomiting. I had HD until 18 weeks and then... The vomiting stopped, but the nausea stayed for a couple more weeks and just I couldn't brush my teeth. I was holding on. I meant I get up in the morning, I'd vomit in the morning first thing. It was lovely. I just got used to it. Nice routine. Just roll out of bed and <laughs> and vomit. I could hold it down if I ate every hour or two all day. But then by the time I got home, I had to get in the shower and I just anything I ate was just coming back. It was so it was just it was awful. And then the reflux and oh just so horrible. But I knew the whole time I just sort of well. I know that I came from a place where I didn't have gum disease. I didn't have tooth decay. I was on top of my nutrition from food sources and prescribed supplements. So it didn't make it any easier to go through, (laughs) but I didn't have to feel like, you know, my teeth were going to fall apart or, or things like that from all this vomiting, which is the acid wash is awful on your teeth. <laughs> yeah. But so on that note, gum disease in particular, we know from research is associated with miscarriage, preterm birth, low birth weight and preeclampsia. And even in the dental community, we really don't talk about that enough. It's research that's available there if you want to know about it, basically. Sometimes it comes up in discussions if we have a younger woman presenting with gum disease, periodontal disease. But do you think it's talked about enough in preconception care in general? You come from a, a nursing and midwife background. Is there any information out there for people? Do they know about it? Very minimal. When I was working in one of the main tertiary hospitals in Melbourne, we ticked a box. So in pregnancy, women would come see us in clinic and it would be simply, have you seen a dentist, basically. And there wasn't much more discussion around it. And like you said, the research out there in regards to gum disease and inflammation, women aren't aware. Health professionals, I don't think, are aware. And you don't want to go into a pattern of treating. You want to be preventing because of the possible complications that can occur. So I think in the space of preconception, it's definitely something that I bring up to my women and say, check in, please, now with your dentist so we can address any underlying issues before you conceive. But it's not spoken about. Rarely is it spoken about. And even when you're, you know, you're doing counselling with women postpartum after they've had the baby, there's never check in there either. So, yeah, it's definitely a space that needs a lot more information, I believe. Yeah, and the unfortunate thing is sort of because of what I was saying before that even in the dental space it's not highlighted enough that even if you do go for that dental appointment, you may not necessarily be getting 
the comprehensive care that could be needed in a preconception space or otherwise just kind of depends on the practice and the provider and what they know and what they tend to do. But I mean, at minimum, you are always going to be told if there's gum disease or tooth decay. Like, <laughs> no one's just going to be going, oh, thanks for your money. See you later. Yeah. But yeah, I think our whole healthcare system needs to step it up a little bit, especially, yeah, because then we have, if we have mum with that lack of bacterial diversity and, and that oral disease, she's a risk to baby. A hundred percent. And other children. So yeah, it's a big picture that we need more to spend more time on, <laughs> for sure. But I'm glad at least there is a, a box to tick. I'm happy to know that at least that much. Is it may good. have changed, but yeah, there used to be a box. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so some people listening might already be pregnant. They might have already had their children, and here we are talking about what they should have done months before a pregnancy, which may or may not have been involved in. Like, Do they need to worry? Is there sort of big consequences if they didn't follow a specific protocol? I believe it's never too late to address your health, your baby's health, reaching out to health professionals. And yes, knowledge is power. And we're in a position here where we're talking about an ideal situation. But this isn't always the circumstances for every woman. Sometimes women will fall pregnant without even realising Or even myself, I didn't have all this information before I conceived my child and I have a a beautiful, healthy, thriving little girl. And so I think if you are, say, in postpartum period and you're thinking, I wish I had known this, I was iron deficient my whole pregnancy, then you reach out to a practitioner and you discuss about ways to build your baby's iron stores and to support their health and development now. And the same thing as if you're pregnant and you're like, oh, I completely missed everything. I've been on a supplement that is maybe rubbish (laughs) and I don't even know where to go with that. Again, reach out to a health professional who can support you to feel you're firstly listened to because I think that's incredibly important in this space and isn't done enough. But for someone to give you specialised support for your circumstances so you can have the best thriving, healthy pregnancy you can have but never too late and the other thing is guilt I think as women and as mothers the last thing you need is guilt around anything else you did the best you could in the circumstance you were at that time and by providing this information now if you're listening to it and your kids are grown up they share to a friend who may be thinking about having a baby I think that's the thing passing on this information to one day, maybe when our children are having children, it's normalized. This is just what you do. Leading up to having a baby, you start to tick off these lists and go, yep, I'm in a really great space to conceive now. Yeah. And that's the traditional role of women, isn't it? The storytelling and the sharing. So we passed down. Yeah. That's really cool. Would you be able to, I guess, give a bit of an example of what happens if someone comes to see you makes an appointment, preconception care. I guess you've spoken about things a little bit sort of here and there as we've talked about some different topics, but what does that look like? What do you go through to support them when they've had that ability to come in preconception and really plan out their care? Yeah, sure. So I love seeing women at preconception because then you can really support them through the whole process. So the first thing I do is I get really thorough in depth pathology test done so I can get a clear understanding of any nutrient deficiencies so we can from the beginning work on ways to build up 
their stores and if needed we add in supplementation we add in food sources just for them to be in the best position possible we speak about lifestyle factors that we've briefly discussed we talk about things such as minimizing caffeine eliminating alcohol eating a whole foods diet and we also talk about environmental factors that can implicate upon your pregnancy and your baby's health in regards to plastics and toxins, everyday cleaning products, in washing detergent. It's everywhere and ways we can minimize that. There's a really great app called Think Dirty. I don't know if you've heard of that, but basically you can put your products in and it can kind of give you a rating. And this is something I like to start in preconception because then by the time you've had the baby, you've kind of processed everything because we know that these certain products and things can really increase the likelihood of allergies and eczema and everything like that. So if we can clean everything up before conceiving, it's not only going to support that process, but also once baby's here. I also talk about the partner. We did before the partner's involvement, how it's 50-50 and that we want to get them on board with a really supportive supplement as well and addressing their food needs and minimizing their alcohol as well and just simple things like not having their phone in their pocket near their reproductive area, simple things like that. And then we talk about stress management because things can get quite stressful in pregnancy and once baby comes. So setting that up really nice space and kind of mindfully looking at the whole body again. There's so much. We also talk, I also talk about gut health too <laughs> because, of course, what position mum's gut health is in is going to be passed to baby, whether or not you have your baby vaginally or via cesarean birth, baby's still exposed to that bacteria. So we really want to support that and correct that. And it depends how much time you have really in regards to your planning and what path you go down at that point. And I think that's majority of it. I feel like I've probably said a lot, but it does depend. Each woman's so unique and different. If it was a second or a third pregnancy, we will also discuss anything that arose previously and ways to address that and eliminate it happening again. Sometimes even a bit of a conversation around a debriefing the previous pregnancy and birth too, because you want to be in a healthier headspace going into this pregnancy. So there's so much to talk about. <laughs> a lot of it crosses over though, doesn't it? Because if you're talking about cutting out plastics and fragrances and things, you are actually also supporting your gut health. And if you're supporting your gut health, then you can actually make the most of those supplements and dietary changes because you have the ability to absorb. So yeah, as you said, it sounds like a lot, but it all interacts. It's kind of all one thing, isn't it? Yeah, it does. And it definitely it can be, I think, overwhelming to women who are new to everything in this sort of space. But I think a lot of women who reach out to me are already doing the groundwork. And so it's just a few changes here and there and we adapt. Individual kind of. Yeah, exactly. So to finish up our chat today, the three questions that I'm firing off to everyone at the end of an episode, if you could change one thing about our current healthcare system, what would you change? So it's hard to change one because there'd be a few I'd like to change. <laughs> and look, we are very lucky in Australia to have access to the healthcare system we do have. But as a healthcare professional, I'm always thriving and I'm seeking, always seeking for more. 
And I think particularly in the maternity space, I would love more free and accessible support in postpartum. I think that is such an area that isn't really discussed enough in pregnancy. There's so much around birth and labor and everything like that. And then you take the baby home and where is everyone? And even like now, I'm not sure about Queensland, but now in Victoria, in the bigger tertiary hospitals, you may go home after 24 hours. You might have one or maybe two visits, depending in the public system. And then in the private system, you might be there for five days and then go home and have no visits. And for some women, say they have a cesarean birth, that delays the process of milk coming in. So they may not have even had a successful breastfeed and they go home. So if we could change the healthcare system that all women had access to lactation consultants in their home environment, they had more support from midwives, they had nutritionists coming and checking in with them to reduce postpartum depletion, and even physiotherapists, osteopaths coming into their space and doing a check over to ensure that their health is in the best position possible because we know that if we support mum, that flows to baby and it actually flows to community as well. And it's going to save us from a a very business government perspective. It's going to actually save money in the long run. (laughs) So, I mean, it's a big change. It's a big change, but that's my. (laughs) No, I love it. And you're so right because it's just, especially, so I live in a small rural town, so where you can't birth here. I believe that is changing. I've heard talk. (laughs) that our local hospital is reopening. We used to have a birth suite, but haven't for quite a long time, but apparently that's changing. So people, like everyone, unless it accidentally happens, which occasionally does, (laughs) happens too fast, but people have to birth out of town. And the closest is about 45 minutes away if you go publicly and it's two hours away if you go privately. So you're adding travel and all your care providers aren't even in the same location as you. And then you go home and you've got appointments to go to. I know it was, it was big for, for, I found it really overwhelming for myself because I had appointments for myself because a lot of things didn't go well for me. My daughter wasn't feeding well. She had tongue tie. So we're trying to do virtual lactation things and just a mess. Meanwhile, I'm like, I haven't slept for the 36 hours before my daughter was actually born. up until all these weeks where you then are not allowed to sleep anymore. <laughs> you're supposed to coordinate all these appointments. And if you're rural like us or even on the other side of a city or something, you've got to travel. Someone's going to drive you because you're not safe operating a vehicle. <laughs> no. no. The last thing you want to do with a newborn is firstly get out of your pyjamas and secondly try to coordinate a newborn who may want to feed at any time, anywhere, into the car, driving somewhere the stress around all of that, they'll probably just as you need to leave the appointment, they'll fall asleep. That's the first time they've fallen asleep for that morning. Yeah. (laughs) So I think that in-home support is the way around all of this. And women are more likely to then also feel safer and secure and if needed, open up about certain concerns they may have at that time as well. And I think that's really important from a psychological perspective as well getting into that area sooner rather than later yeah great idea let me know when you implement (laughs) the change (laughs) (laughs) so what do you wish was taught in our schools or our universities whichever way about health 
little bit of a sideway here, but I would actually say meditation. I think it's so imperative, particularly our teens now, learning strategies, all primary school kids or toddlers, learning strategies to just calm their nervous system down. I think as a society, we're highly stressed and busy, and that has an immense impact upon our overall health and well-being. And so by putting something as simple as meditation into everyday school life and giving these children techniques of ways to calm and regulate themselves is just going to have a positive impact upon their health, their mental health, their physical health, as it's all linked at the end of the day. So I know some schools are starting to do this and even the childcare centre my little girl goes to, that we'll have like a yoga day and things like that. But I think at the moment it's kind of just a little fluffy idea. But if it was actually spoken about, these are the benefits. If you meditate for 20 minutes, you are going to get five times the amount of nervous system regulation that deep sleep will give you. Like how amazing for a sleep-deprived mum, 20 minutes meditate. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, I worked in a school dental van at a primary school that was doing this there. The sort of after second lunch practice was they sat in a circle and they lit a candle and it was a Catholic school. So I think there may have been a prayer element to it as well. I took issue with the candle because it wasn't a great candle. But (laughs) otherwise, yeah, it was really beautiful. It was kind of a step up from what I did at primary school where you had to come in from lunch and, and just sit there and read a book. That's still something. But yeah, there wasn't so much. I guess a talk or being aware that that's what you were doing. They were just trying to get us all calmed down and cool down from lunch because also didn't have air conditioning. So we were, um, oh, okay. We're just trying to chill out. (laughs) But yeah, I think it's coming. I think it's getting better. You're right. Yeah. And is there a book, a podcast, a documentary, some kind of media or anything like that that you would like anyone listening to? Well, um, I have like a library of books in my office, but two, well, one that I think preconception wise that I think beautifully talks about what we've spoken about today in depth and also presents some recipes and food options and things like that is a book by Hang O and it's called Awakening Fertility, The Essential Art of Preparing for Pregnancy. And so that is a really sort of holistic approach to coming into pregnancy. And she also has another book called The Fourth Trimester, which you may have heard of. It's very spoken about in that space. So that's a great one, preconception-wise. And then another one that I'm reading at the moment is by Lally Stone, and it's called Raising Compassionate and Resilient Children. And I think when you do become a mother, there's a lot of wounds that are exposed from your experience and it's a wonderful opportunity to kind of go into that and be able to parent maybe your child the way you were or the way you weren't parented and kind of explore that idea. And she does this in a beautiful, really non-judgmental way. And so that's, I think, a great read. Everyone, really. Yeah. Beautiful. And how can our listeners work with you if they like the sound of what you do? Sure. So I have Instagram, social media, Instagram and Facebook, and my handle is at Mindful Midwife Mama. And then I also have a website and that is www.mindfulmidwifemama.com.au. I offer a 10-minute chat 
to just kind of make sure that what I offer is what you're looking for, basically, and that we do gel and that you basically find someone that's going to listen and going to support you where you need it. Brilliant. All those links will be in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for talking to me today. This was a really good chat. We really only are on surface of so many of those things, but hopefully they've just maybe sent someone down a rabbit hole that gets gets the answers and the help that they were after. It's really good talking to you today. Thanks, Mel. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. Head to the show notes if you would like to get in touch with this week's guest. And if you'd like to learn more about oral and facial function or work with me at The Face Place, you'll find me on Instagram at thefaceplace underscore OFM or at thefaceplaceofm.com.au. The Face Place podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Juru people. I would like to pay my respects to the elders past and present.